0: Open up your Bibles again to 2 Corinthians 8, verses 1 through 9. 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 9. I jokingly said to a couple of people uh, last week, and I think I even said it from the pulpit last week, and then to Todd this morning, that um, as a pastor, it seems like pastoral suicide to both teach on on Revelation during Bible study time and then preach on giving. Um, I mean, it's just, you don't do that, right? So if we get through this, this month, Guess what? It is clear sailing from here for Harbin's Community Baptist Church. But actually, after I thought about it, and, and part of the reason I chose those um, the song that we, we first sang and then the, the passage from Revelation is, is that this, if we do have a good view of the end, and that is that we belong to a God who reigns and rules and is victorious, and we have an inheritance that is amazing and astounding and beyond all imagination. It should cause us to be better stewards of our financial resources now. So open up your Bible to 2 Corinthians 8, verses 1 through 9. This is our third sermon on this short little series on financial stewardship called Gospel-Centered Giving. After Easter, we'll return to our verse-by-verse walk through the earthly life and ministry of Jesus now, this little series here was birthed simply out of a desire to see us, all of us, myself included, grow in our understanding of how we as believers handle our material resources. It was birthed, I think, out of, a, of an understanding that I think this is an area of spiritual growth that our church needs to grow in. It's an area of maturity, and, and it would be pastoral negligence just to ignore areas of maturity that we need to grow in. So, with that in mind, we're doing this little mini-series, and we'll conclude the series next Sunday. But today we'll be zeroing in primarily on verses 5 through 9 of this passage today. But we're going to read the whole passage to make sure we get the context. Um, So go ahead and stand if you would as we read 2 Corinthians 8, beginning in verse 1. And this is the Word of God, and we believe it's in the infallible and errant Word of God, and that's why we stand in the honor of reading it. Verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia, Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, and all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, every time I read verse 9, I just, <laughs> that that just sums it all up. All of our giving, all of our, the way we handle our financial resources has to be centered on that last verse. So God, this morning as we come to the text and we go back and we try to continue to look at different aspects of of the giving that was both demonstrated in the Macedonian church and encouraged in the Corinthian church. I pray, Father, that you would give us receptive hearts, so give us ears to hear and give me a mouth to speak your word accurately. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Certainly one of the most powerful movies I remember from my early adulthood uh, when I was in college was the movie Schindler's List. Many of you you probably saw it. Uh, It's too graphic and intense of a movie, I know, for most, if not all, the children in the room. But in that movie, in that powerful movie, uh, which which is a movie that recalls the life of Oscar Schindler, and if you remember who Oscar Schindler was, he was this German entrepreneur he, um, he actually bought a couple of different factories. And originally his intent was just to make money. He stocked those factories full of workers that were, that were Jews. And, but as the war progressed in Nazi Germany, and actually this was in Poland where this was happening. As the war progressed and the Jews were being taken off to, to death camps... Oskar Schindler began to use his factories as a means of protecting his workers and tried to get more Jews into his factories so they could work in the factory and therefore be protected from the Nazis. And Schindler used a lot of his money and a lot of his resources to not only get Jews into the factory, but then to bribe German officials and pay them off to keep them away from his workers. And in the end, he lost everything. He lost all of his wealth in his attempt To protect the Jewish people. But there's a scene at the end of the movie. Where the war has concluded. And he's standing there around all these people that he has helped to save. And he's saying goodbye to them. And he begins to be overcome with with grief. He's overcome with what more he could have done. And and in that scene he, he says something along the lines of. If I had just made more money. I could have saved more people. And then he looks over at the car, and of all the scenes in the movie, this is the one that, that, that just impacted me and sticks with me to this day. He looks at his car and he says, "He says the car, this car. Why didn't I sell the car?" And then he looks at this pen he has on his his jacket, and he looks at this pen. He says, "This pen, this pen is made of gold. I could have sold this pen and at least saved save six more, two more, at least one more." So at the end of his life, Oscar Schindler was looking at the stuff he had remaining and was still regretting that he could not have did not use more for the sake of saving more people. To me that end of that movie can kind of serve as an illustration for us. Our money, our possessions, they will not follow us into heaven. Now I think we all obviously know that, but the question is Do we live that way? It's one thing to know that. It's another thing to live that way. The Christian is to live with a unique view of material possessions. A view radically different than the world's view of material possessions. The Christian is to view his wealth, be it a little or a lot, as a means to serve God's purposes. And in the process of serving God's purposes as a means of gaining a better treasure, a better possession in the life to come. That's why Jesus says in Luke chapter 12, verse 33, Sell your possessions, give to the needy, provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also." But I think we would be lying if we were to say living that sort of way is easy. It's not easy. It's hard. It requires spiritual discipline because our flesh is weak. Our eyes are so easily attracted to earthly things. The temptation to hold on to our stuff for the here and now is very strong. The allure of anchoring our contentment in temporal blessings is very powerful. And yes, we are to enjoy the good things God gives us here and now, but we are not to enjoy them more than we enjoy God. And therefore, we do not anchor our contentment in them, but we hold them loosely, always being ready to give them up for God's purposes, for we are only stewards. So to help us us shock us out of our sinful impulses when it comes to material possessions, The Bible says all kinds of startling things about money. Including this passage in James, which is written to the church believers. James 5, verse 1 says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded. And the corrosion, listen to this, will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire you have laid up treasure in the last days now i believe probably James is writing to those who proclaim to be believers but the way they handle their wealth is evidence that they're not believers because this is pretty strong language here but still it was written to the church and so it's written to us and it should shock us when we hear verses like this hebrews 9:27 says it's appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment the moment we breathe our last like oscar schindler we will be out of time And according to James 5, our resources that we didn't use for God's kingdom purposes will testify against us. There'll be a testimony against us like Oscar Schindler's car. And so the question I hope that hangs in the air this morning is this. Will we be looking at our life and our stuff from the other side of eternity, wishing we had used it more wisely, more sacrificially, more intentionally for God's kingdom? What earthly treasures will we have sought and kept at the expense of heavenly treasures? You see, in this room today, every, and every single person on this planet is either traveling away from our treasure or traveling toward it. We are either cherishing earthly treasure, and day by day, as death draws near, we are traveling away from our treasure. Or, we are accumulating and desiring heavenly treasure, and day by day, as death draws near, we are moving toward our treasure. So everybody in this room is either moving away from your treasure, or you're moving toward your treasure. So this series is designed to make us the ladder of that group people that are moving toward their treasure. And so my desire is that God stir up a heart of gracious generosity in our church and in each one of us individually by fixing our eyes on the things of heaven and not on the things of earth. Now, as I mentioned earlier today, we're going to primarily focus on verses 5 through 9, but we need to recap a little bit. We know that Paul has been stirred by God to take a collection for the Jerusalem church which is impoverished, has fallen upon very hard times due to persecution and other reasons. And we we went over a lot of that the first week we studied this. And so he's challenged the Gentile churches, the churches that he has primarily been involved in planting, he's challenged them to, to make a commitment to help out the church in Jerusalem. And so now Paul is writing to the Corinthian church and he's urging them to keep their commitment. Keep the commitment they made to give toward the Jerusalem saints. And so he wants to stir them up by showing them the example of the Macedonian churches who had given generously despite being in, in very dire straits themselves. So the first week, we studied verses one through two, and we saw that the Macedonian giving was grace enabled. Grace enabled. So I was bringing these up to remind us. So the first week, it was grace enabled. And we see in verse one, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia okay the churches of macedonia they had been given god's grace and that's what had enabled them to become generous givers and so it was because of that grace in them that allowed them to have circumstance defying um, giving because we see that they were themselves experiencing a severe test of affliction they were in extreme poverty but this didn't keep them from giving and it didn't keep them from giving happily for we see also that their giving was joy-fueled. So it was grace-enabled, circumstance-defying. It was joy-fueled because it says here that, that, that they had an abundance of joy. And all this was, was adding together to overflow in a wealth of generosity, which means that there was also open-handed giving. It was grace-enabled, circumstance-defying, joy-fueled, and open-handed giving. And from that point, we, there were 10 observations I wanted us to make beginning in verse 3. And I mentioned last week I desired to examine those observations in question form. So last week we looked at verses 3 and 4 and asked ourselves if we see giving the same way the Macedonians saw giving. So do we see giving as, number one, an honorable stewardship? Do we see giving, number two, as a calculated risk? Okay, so they gave according to their means. They had been entrusted with money. According to the power that they had. And they were giving according to that. So they were being good stewards. But it also says they were giving beyond their means. They were making calculated risks with their money. It was a free choice. Do we see giving as a free choice? Do we see giving as a gratifying privilege? It says they begged earnestly for the favor of taking part of the relief of the saints. And finally, do we see giving as a delightful fellowship? And this whole, that was whole based upon this word taking part, which is one word in the Greek, which is Koinonia. They they were looked forward to the koinonia, the fellowship with their brothers, by giving to help them out. And that brings us to today, verses 5 through 9, in which we'll make five more observations and ask a new question. Last week I asked, how do we see or understand giving? And today I want us to ask the question, how do we approach giving? So the first question is simply this. Do we approach giving as a manifestation of our devotion to God? Do we approach giving as a manifestation of our devotion to God? Or you can put worship of God right there if you wanted to. So I'm start back at verse 3 to get us the flow and then focus in on verse 5. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord." They gave themselves first to the Lord. So the the astonishing generosity of the Macedonians, first of all, it was not what Paul had expected. The Macedonians had exceeded what Paul and his team had had hoped that they would be able to give. So it was literally a shocking generosity. And so we've already seen that this mind-blowing, shocking generosity is supernatural in its nature. It is grace-enabled. But this verse helps us to see that this radical generosity is also, in effect, flowing ...out of our deep devotion to and worship of God. For we read that they gave themselves first, first to the Lord. They gave themselves. And the verb give here, they gave themselves... ...is the same verb that's used in other places in the scripture... ...to refer to the giving of offerings. The giving of money or the giving of a gift. So they gave themselves as an offering. Their whole being, their heart, soul, mind and strength to God. They were willing to give themselves away to God... Because they knew that God didn't only own all their stuff, God owned them. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 19 says that that you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. If we know that we're not our own, that we were purchased for a price, then, then we are the kind of people that should be willing to give ourselves away. You see, their generosity with their material possessions wasn't something added on to their devotion to God. It was an upshot of that devotion. For it says here that they gave themselves to God first. That's what we must do. Now, we all know that it is possible, it is possible to to give one's material resources without being a true and wholehearted worshiper of God. There are thousands of different motivations people might have for giving that aren't right motivations. So we know that it is possible for people to give material resources to God without being a true and wholehearted worshiper of God. But I want to say that it's impossible to be a true and wholehearted worshiper of God without giving at least some of your material resources to Him. I don't, I don't see a way that it's possible to say you're giving yourself to God, being a wholehearted, true worshiper of God, devoted to God, and it not affect your wallet. In other words, if we give ourselves to God, if we give our whole hearts to God, our money will follow. Like I said, now it is possible to give out of wrong motivations. I remember when we lived in Bentonville, Arkansas. We lived at the home of Walmart. If you don't know what Bentonville is, it's the home of Walmart. So our church had lots of Walmart people in it. it was Wall Church, okay? It had lots of vendors in it, and. The thing is, one of the issues that we as pastors ran into that church was fathers neglecting their families because they were so doggone busy. It was one of the issues that that was in the church. And, And I remember our pastor at that church at the time telling a story about a father, and I don't know who it was in the church. His family was falling apart, and when he was going through counseling with the pastor, he said, I don't know what the problem is. I give my family everything. I give them everything. And he talked about how he brought gifts. Every time he went on a business trip, he'd bring elaborate gifts back home. Gifts from China, gifts from all over the world for his kids. They had all kinds of stuff. And the money he was making in the process was providing them a wonderful living. They had an awesome house and and he just didn't get it. He was giving his family stuff. But as the pastor pointed out to him, He wasn't giving them himself at all. That's the temptation that falls upon many, many men in our culture. So it is possible to give stuff to God as well and not give him your heart, not give him your whole self. But what does it mean to give yourself to God? You know, that can become one of these biblical phrases that, that becomes very vague and nebulous that we Christians like to repeat. Oh, just give yourself to God, man. Just give yourself to God. Just give yourself to God. What does it mean, though, no. to give yourself to God? We've we got to put, put feet on the phrase. We've got to make it concrete here. So we need to ground this phrase in something. And so I think we need to go to Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Here we see a similar expression that the Apostle Paul uses in Romans 12. He says this in verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. This is what it means to give oneself to God, to to present your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. It's your devotion to God to give him yourself as a spiritual sacrifice. I think this is what the Macedonians had done. In view of or empowered by the grace of God, God's mercies, they had in true devotion and in true worship given themselves first to God by presenting themselves as living sacrifices. But still the question begs, how does one do that? How does one make himself or herself a living sacrifice to God? Well, we need to keep on reading in Romans. So let's look at verse 2. Romans 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world... But be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And then in the rest of that chapter in Romans 12, Paul goes on to give us a bunch of very practical, ethical uh, examples in Romans 12 of, of what the good and perfect acceptable will of God is. So we give ourselves to God as living sacrifices by, number one, not being conformed to the world. And number two... By being transformed through the renewal of our minds. Minds that that therefore know and desire to do God's will. But still we ask the question, how does that happen then? Well, renewal of the mind is an inward work of the Holy Spirit. And the tool the Holy Spirit uses to renew the mind is what? The Word. The Spirit operates through His Spirit-inspired Word. The Bible is the means of grace that God uses to transform us. So we read in Psalm 1, verse 1, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. That's not being conformed to this world. Blessed is the man who's not going to have his mind and his thoughts and his heart shaped by this world. Blessed is he. And then verse 2, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. That's the renewal. Renewal that we're looking for. So the question, how do we, like the Macedonians, give ourselves to God first? The answer is we ingest this book. We must hear it, we must read it, we must study it, we must memorize it, we must meditate upon it. That's what makes us into people who give themselves to God. And that's what transforms the way we look at our material wealth. And for that matter, the way we look at our whole lives. Matter of fact, this book, when that happens, becomes a greater treasure itself. Psalm 119, 162. I rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoil. Is that, how, is that how excited you are about the word? Do you rejoice like one who's found great spoil? I mean, let's, just, let's imagine that tomorrow you're outside getting ready to plant flowers for spring and clank, you find something. And it's a big old treasure box. And it's got lots of stuff in it. Lots of money in it, plenty of money to keep you comfortable for the rest of your life. Right now, as I'm putting that image in your mind, are you saying, yeah, I wish that would happen? Do you desire that more than you desire this? Because this is a greater treasure, and it sits on so many people's shelves with dust on top of it. It's buried under other dirt, the dirt of our neglect. Do we treasure this book the way Psalm 119, 162 tells us we should. So when we walk up here during our response time and we put something in that box, we need to ask ourselves whether or not we have put ourselves in that box first. Have we put our passions, our allegiances, our desires, our preferences, our family, our job, our talents, have we put it all in that box? But you can't put yourselves in that box unless your mind has been renewed by the word. So now I think it makes sense that if I'm right here about, about what it means to give oneself over to God and how that happens. If I'm right, then, then about the refusal of being shaped by the world and instead of the desire to be renewed by God by the means of his word. Then it doesn't surprise me what Paul says next in the text. Because verse 5 it says, They gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. You see, if we are surrendering to God by surrendering to his word, then we will submit to those God puts over us to teach us that word. So the question now is, do we approach giving as, number two, a means of our submission to God-ordained leaders? As a means of our submission to God-ordained leaders. They gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Let's remember why these Macedonian believers and the Corinthians, why were they doing this in the first place? Because they had been challenged by Paul, the God-ordained spiritual leader in their lives. He had presented them with a challenge, and he had presented them with a need. And so he had asked them to do this collection. And so the Macedonians had responded with glad submission to that challenge. And in the Scripture, we read over and over again, that surrender to God is accompanied by submission to God-ordained leadership. From Genesis all the way to Revelation, we see that submission to God, surrender to God's work is accompanied by submission to God's God-ordained leadership. And it makes sense that if we take this book, the Bible, seriously, then we take those that God has put over us to teach us this book seriously as well. God has structured the church to work in that way. So in Paul's time, there were the apostles. Now, I think everyone in this room agrees with me. If you don't, I'd be glad to have a discussion with you That the apostolic office has ceased There are no more apostles Despite what you might see on a billboard driving down 124 There are no more apostles The the apostolic office died off in the first generation of the church When the apostles died But we still have apostolic authority It's this book right here This is the apostles' teaching. So, Acts chapter 2, the church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And you think, oh, well, we don't have the apostles anymore. How do we do that? You devote yourself to the book. (laughs) This is the apostles' teaching. So, this is the ultimate authority. But the apostles were the authority in the church. They gave us the infallible, inerrant word, and they also established leadership in the church. And we know that that is in the form of elders or pastors who are supposed to be given over to teaching that apostolic word to the church. And so it seems in the Bible that the elders replace the apostles as they die off as the spiritual authority in the church. But the church and the elders are both under the authority of the word. And that's how we mutually submit to one another. So when an elder strays from the word, the church holds him accountable. And when the church is straying from the word, the elders should be preaching it clearly and carefully and challenging the church to come back to the Word. So that's how it happens now. Now, what does this have to do with giving? Well, it seems that the Bible connects our giving with submission to spiritual authority in at least a couple of different places. First of all, in Acts chapter 4, verse 34, it says, There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. So it wasn't just, hey, Barnabas has land, so-and-so has a need, and so Barnabas sells his land and goes to the so-and-so and and says, hey, I'm going to give this to you. Barnabas, when there was needs in the church, it was brought to the attention of the church, and then the church brought that money to the feet of the spiritual authority in their lives, which was the apostles. Interestingly, also the book of Hebrews, it speaks about money in a couple of different places, and and one of the places it speaks of it is Hebrews 13, verse 5, which we read a couple of weeks ago. It says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? That is immediately followed by verse 7 in Hebrews chapter 13. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate ...their faith. Later in the same chapter... ...we read about seeking heavenly treasures... ...offering spiritual sacrifices... ...and sharing our earthly treasures with others... ...beginning in verse 14. It says this... ...for here we have no lasting city... ...but we seek a city that is to come. Through him then let us continually offer up... ...sacrifice of praise to God... ...that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name... ...do not neglect to do good... ...and to share what you have... For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. And after that, immediately after that, we read verse 17, which says, Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So why do we see what apparently is some sort of close association between submission to leaders and the handling of our money? Well, the first is for very practical reasons. Someone had to administrate and decide how the financial gifts that were given to the church were to be used and distributed. So we're not surprised to see that even in today's text, okay, Paul sends one of the elders to the Corinthians. It says in verse 6, accordingly, meaning because those given over to God also submit to leaders, God's leaders, accordingly, we urge Titus. That as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. So he's sending Titus to help make sure it happens. So from a very practical standpoint, it makes sense that giving involves submission to God-ordained leadership. But secondly, there's a deeper spiritual reason. We need to remember that giving, just like everything else in our lives, needs to be shaped by and directed by the truth of God's word. And God gives the church elders so that they can teach that truth to the church. The love of money is perhaps one of the strongest strongholds in the sinful heart. And therefore, it should be no surprise that giving is one of the areas we, in our flesh, are likely to least desire accountability or instruction. We don't want accountability about our money. We don't want instruction about our money. We don't want to hear it because the love of money is such a powerful thing in the human heart. Therefore, God seems to specifically tie how we use our money to submission to spiritual leadership because we so desperately need it. But elders in the church lead not only by the authority of the word, but as we saw in Hebrews 13, 7, they also lead by example. So in Acts chapter 20, the Apostle Paul is challenging the Ephesian elders to be alert, to teach well. And then he says this in verse 35, In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the, of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. He's speaking to the elders there. And so elders are to lead the way in generous giving. This is why we are told that elders must not be greedy for gain and not lovers of money, nor should they post ads on Facebook trying to buy $65 million planes. It's a scary thing, but the church will usually end up looking like its leaders. It's scary for me. And you're probably looking up here saying, Steve, it's scary for us too. All right. It's a scary thing. But the way God has structured things, the church will usually end up looking like its leaders. That's why my exhortations on giving have started in my own home. It starts with my family, it starts with me. Everything I've preached the last two weeks and this week, I've preached to myself first. So, submission to God ordained authority in the church is not only practical, it's spiritual, it's for the maturity of the body. Paul's words in Colossians 28 should be the heartbeat of every pastor. It says this, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. I'll be honest. That's why I'm doing this series. Because I saw an area where I did not think our church was mature, and so I stepped into a series I did not want to step into so that we will all grow in this area. So that when I stand before the throne of grace being judged at a much stricter judgment than anyone out there who's not a teacher, when I stand before that throne, I can say, Lord, I tried to pursue maturity in this area. I tried to not neglect the maturity of our church in this area. So that brings me to the next question this morning. Do we approach giving, number three, as a mark of our maturation in God's grace? A mark of our maturation in God's grace. Look at verse seven. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. There's that phrase again, act of grace. We saw it also in verse 6. We're reminded that generosity is on display in the Macedonian churches, and it's desired from the Corinthian churches. That generosity is from, is a product of God's grace in them, and it's also an act of God's grace being mediated through them, So as I said last week, we can either be bowls or pipes. And as God pours his grace into us, we can be pouring it out to others. Or we can be a bowl that just sits there and absorbs and eventually gets stagnant. You see, we are not only stewards of our money, but we are stewards of grace in a sense. Grace poured into us should be poured out. Now Paul says here, see that you excel. This word excel means that you abound or grow or increase or mature. And that's why I use the word mature that you mature, grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ is what Peter tells us in 1 Peter 3.18. So this act of grace is generous and sacrificial giving from the churches to others. And so this generous giving is listed with other areas of the Christian life in which we're expected to grow and mature. So he mentions in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you. Apparently the Corinthians have been growing in these areas, according to Paul. Faith. Okay, our faith should be increasing as we mature in Christ. It should be increasing. Second Thessalonians 1.3 We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly. Speech. Okay, this probably refers to the proclamation of the word, which, which likewise should be growing in any church. It should be growing in our own lives, individually. We should be able to share the word and proclaim the word to others. Romans 15, 14. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. So this speech, this instructing of one another, that should be increasing in our church. A church that's growing in maturity should be producing teachers, preachers, and in knowledge, it says here, referring simply to their growth and their understanding of the gospel and his word. Colossians 1.10 says, So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. That's part of our maturity. Increasing in the knowledge of God. And then earnestness, which means zeal and effort and diligence. Hebrews 6.11 says, And we desire each of you to show the same earnestness. It's the same word right there to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So we should be growing in our zeal, in our earnestness, in our, in our diligence. So Paul was pleased to see all these things growing in the Corinthian church, but, there, but there's one area that I think if we know 1 Corinthians, there's one area that the Corinthian church seemed to be lacking in. The Corinthian church seemed to be, at least in the first letter written to the Corinthians, lacking in the area of love. It says in 1 Corinthians 13, 1 If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, there's the speech, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, there's the knowledge. And if I have all faith as to remove mountains, there's the faith. But I have not love, I am nothing. Nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned, there's the earnestness. But I have not love, I gain nothing. So I think something has changed here in the Corinthian church because Paul goes on to mention their love. It says that they're excelling in our love for you. Now let me just, let me just take a, a little bit of a parenthetical moment here. ...to talk about that phrase, our, in our love for you. Now let me say, I think that's a bad rendering of the Greek in the ESV. There is a textual variant in the Greek manuscripts. The vast majority of the Greek manuscripts translate this in your love for us. Which, in the context, seems to make a whole lot more sense. However, the earliest and usually the most reliable manuscripts... ...translate this as it is here in the ESV. In our love for you. So the translators had to make a choice. Okay. Are they going to go with the majority of transcripts, manuscripts, or the earliest ones? And they had to determine in this context, is Paul commending the Corinthians for maturing in their love of him and his companions? Or is he commending them for maturing in his love for them, which to me is nonsensical. I think the obvious translation is that the Corinthians are excelling in their love for Paul and his companions. Most translations other than the ESV agree with me. And I think that that's what they're excelling in, their love for Paul. Now, there's more to be said there about that, and we could talk about that later. But I think what we're seeing here is that their love is increasing. It's maturing, which it wasn't happening way back in 1 Corinthians. So you see, Paul wanted the Corinthians to, to and us, to not only approach giving as, as the manifestation of our devotion to God, and as a facet of our, um, as a means of our submission to God-ordained leaders, and as a mark of our maturation in God's grace, he also wants us to approach giving as, number four, a materialization of, ...of our love toward God and his people. So I think that translating it... ...that they were showing love towards Paul and his companions... ...is backed up by the very next thing Paul says in verse 8. 2 Corinthians 8, 8. I say this not as a command... ...but to prove by the earnestness of others... ...that your love also is genuine. Giving is love materialized. Love proven. Love made real. So Paul wants them to approach giving as a confirmation as a verification that they, that they do indeed love. They love God and they love the church. They love one another. Now, as I said earlier, you can give without having true love, like the dad who comes home from the business trip and gives the extravagant gifts to his kid but doesn't really love his kids. But also, I believe that if their dad came home and, or the dad never did anything for his kids, didn't provide for his family, never provided any gifts for his children, never showed any sort of love in any sort of material way to his children, I think that would also be evidence that he doesn't have true love for his family. Matter of fact, it says you're worse than an unbeliever if you don't provide for your family. And so I do think that giving can be a manifestation of our love, whether or not it's genuine or not. Giving that flows out of devotion to God is giving that should abound in love. The giving of the Macedonians was confirmed in their love with their love for God in God's people. And so now Paul wants to see that in the Corinthians too. This verse uh, uh, backs up what we saw last week, namely that the kind of giving Paul wants is free will giving, bubbling up out of a transformed heart, a heart that loves. This is why I believe the tithe is not a New Testament law. And if you want more on that, you can go listen to it last week. If it were, then all Paul has to do is repeat that this is a command. You're commanded to give. But he specifically says here that it's not a command. What Paul wants is is for grace to flow out of their hearts just as it's been flowing into their hearts. It's more than mere external obedience to a command. Generosity, let me say this as clearly as I can. Generosity cannot be stirred up by the law, even though the law commands it. Let me say that again. Generosity cannot be stirred up by the law, even though the law commands it. Deuteronomy Fifteen ten, you shall give to him freely and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him because for this, the Lord, your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake for there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. The law commands free, happy, generous giving, but the law gives no power to make it happen. The law could only show us what we should do. It couldn't actually produce it in the heart. It's like a parent. You got kids, they get into a fight. You take, tell this kid, tell your sister you're sorry. That's a command. Tell your sister you're sorry. And the child usually goes, I'm sorry. You cannot make the heart truly be sorry. You can command it to say it's sorry. But only a heart a heart change needs to happen in the child for genuine sorrow to be there. The same thing. The law doesn't change the heart. The law points us to the gospel. The law points us to Christ. The law points us to the only thing that can change the heart. And that is a renewed heart. The Holy Spirit coming in, making the heart new, and writing the law on our hearts. And now giving us the desire to give freely, generously, openly, like we were commanded to. Only the gospel makes it happen. That's why this is gospel-centered giving. Not command-centered giving. If I wanted to do a series on command-centered giving, it'd be real simple. I'd go to Malachi chapter 3, say 10%, we're done. Do it. It's not that simple in the New Testament. Because now it's flowing out of a heart. that's bursting with affection for God and for God's people, and therefore it's a heart that no longer wants to hold on to the things of this world. I can't command that. I can preach it with passion and loud and yell it, whisper it. I don't care. I can't command that. That's a Holy Spirit work in the heart. So hopefully the law will convict and the Holy Spirit will change the heart. I love this poem. It's commonly attributed to John Bunyan, but he probably isn't the original author of it. He says, Run, John, and work, the law commands, yet finds me neither feet nor hands. But sweeter news the gospel brings, it bids me fly and lends me wings. Let me say it again. Run, John, and work, the law commands, yet finds me neither feet nor hands. But sweeter news the gospel brings, it bids me fly and lends me wings. So Deuteronomy 15 says, give willingly, give generously, give open-handedly. But the law provides us with no capacity to carry that out. It leaves us wanting. So then comes the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we're given new hearts and thus the ability to carry out what the law commands. So you see, it is not about the law. It's not about a tithe. It's about grace and gospel. It's about transformed hearts and renewed minds that now desire to give and to give freely out of genuine love for God and man. And that's what I want for me. And that's what I want for you. So we see it again. New Testament giving is radically gospel-centered, which brings me to the last point. And this is, we'll spend our whole next week, really, on this point. Do we approach giving as a mirroring of the gospel of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ? Because verse 9 says that our main motivation is the gospel. Does, is our giving, when you come up here and you put something in this, are you thinking gospel? Are you thinking about Verse 9. I'm freely giving this up because he gave himself up for me. I I don't think I'm just speaking for me. Usually it's part of our routine. We put it at the end of the service. And you walk up here, you fold the check, and you drop it in, and you walk back, and you go sit back down, and you mumble the rest of the song. I don't think we're thinking gospel. When we do, it changes everything. I think when we think gospel, it makes us look at that little check and wonder how many more zeros we should add to it. Because we can't give enough. We can't give enough to mirror the gospel. We can't even come close. Verse 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. So we're going to spend all next week on that verse. What a perfect verse for the beginning of Holy Week. Wonderful, wonderful text. So that's where we're going to end today. For now, let us see this morning that Paul anchors his appeal for generous giving in the gospel. We have to see that. Paul anchors his appeal for generous giving in the gospel. And our giving should reflect the gospel. It should mirror it. There are many ways we can demonstrate the gospel in everyday living. Our marriage. We should be mirroring the gospel in our marriage. In our parenting. And so should we in our giving. There are many different areas that we should mirror the gospel. So I close this morning by asking you, are you a child of God? Do you belong to him? You can't say, you can't do any of the things we've talked about this morning without being internally transformed by God's grace through the gospel. You must be born again. If you haven't been born again, you are still John trying to do what the law commands, yet without feet or hands. Oh, I entreat you this morning, if you're not a believer, to submit to Christ. Give yourself to him this morning. And if he is at work in you, you will do it. Our God is not primarily interested in your money or your stuff. He wants you. The other stuff will come. And your desire for those things will be transformed. But first, give yourself to God. For those who are children of God this morning, do we look like it? Do we act like it? Does our giving reflect the gospel? Is it serving others? Is it surrendered to God? Is it submissive to God's will? And is it sacrificial? We don't want to come to the end of our earthly journey with deep regret. Thinking I could have done more. This car, this house, this money. I could have done more. Remember friends, we are pilgrims. This is not our home. And pilgrims travel light. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I say that at the end of the sermon, that pilgrims travel light. And I think even the, the most financially challenged of us here in this room, the most, the poorest in this room is still traveling a lot heavier than our brothers and sisters that we prayed for this morning. who are being persecuted for the gospel. So God, I say that. I pray, Lord, that you keep that in our minds just so that you can do in us what Paul was trying to do in the Macedonians, and that is to see that giving isn't about our circumstances. It's about the heart. So God, I pray that you do a work in all of our hearts. Help me, help it start with me, Lord. I pray that it would start with me and that my family would look at how we can travel lighter. And that each one of us in here would do the same. And the only way we can do that is if we realize this home is just temporary. We've got a much better home. So God, we praise you and we thank you for this heavenly inheritance that you have for us. It's beyond anything we could ever think or imagine. Some of us in here are thinking, I can imagine a lot. But God, help us to see the greatest treasure that we're going to have being in heaven is simply being with you, seeing our Savior, worshiping with uninhibited worship, singing songs so much better than the songs we sang this morning, that song, Revelation song. When we actually start singing those words when we're in heaven, I know it's going to sound a lot better. Father, I just thank you for what we have coming So God, help us to desire that, to look forward to that, to look at our earthly stuff as simply stuff that is given to us for the purpose of using for your kingdom, and if we'll let go of it and use it for your kingdom, then we can look forward to much greater things in the future. So God, help our motives to be right, that we do this because we love you. And we love one another. We love you with all heart, soul, mind, and strength. We've given ourselves over to you. And we love our neighbors as ourselves. So, Father, I pray that you would just continue to work on our hearts and prepare us for next week. I pray that you would take every single member that's here this morning, every person in this room this morning, I pray they would meditate upon 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, this whole week. And just marinate in that word. Think about that text So God, I pray that that would be so heavy on our hearts this week that we come back next week and just enjoy the feast that is your word. One little verse. What a feast in that verse. So God, I pray this for all of us, myself included. And now, Lord, as we close and we're gonna sing about your greatness, Father, help us to see that you're so great and what you have for us because we're your children is so great that everything else just sort of fades away. It all... Grows dim in the light of your goodness and your glory and your majesty. So, Lord, we thank you and thank you for this time to gather this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.